you want to turn to Ecclesiastes 11, we'll start at verse um, 7, second to last sermon in Ecclesiastes, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians, and with a couple breaks, be in 1 Corinthians for about a year. A lot of good stuff in there. Um, many of you, uh, some of you are familiar with the Puritans, the, the group um, in the 17th and 18th centuries of, of English Protestants who sought to purify the, the church. And many of them came over to, to America with that pursuit. Um, many of you might, might know that the Puritans have a sort of reputation. Um, it is summed up as a being a Puritan is summed up and described by one journalist as the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. <laughs> so goes the, the reputation of the Puritans. Well, whether or not this was accurate of the Puritans is up for debate, but it is perhaps not too far off from describing what we Christians can often be like. If you were to take a survey of people outside of the church and say, can you give us one word of what, how you would describe Christians, how many times would the answer be joyful, delightful, even just pleasant? And then if you were to compare that with, as you read through Scripture, and the, how many times you come across God's people being described as joyful and commanded to be joyful and to take delight and be spoken of, you know, the Spirit is, brings joy to all of God's people. It's all over the place, even, in fact, in the often dark and depressing book of Ecclesiastes. We find joy all over the place. So we're going to unpack joy, this unique joy of the Lord, the joy of being a Christian, um, a little bit today. We've talked about joy, we've come across it a few times in the book, but we're going to dwell on it and unpack it a little bit more today. Uh, the actual text before us today is a little bit challenging. It's a wonderful section, but it takes a little bit of time to grasp the whole, the big picture. And so, so here's how we're going to go through it. We're going to read the text up front, and I'm going to kind of give you some notes as we go to help you see what the text is saying, to help you see with confidence what it's saying before we draw too many conclusions. And then we'll work through some some points and some conclusions. Um, and, and part of the reason for doing this, this is that the reason we preach in the first place is not because I have anything great to say, is not because I have any authority to tell you what to believe or to do, but because we have God's Word, which is authoritative, which gives us what we need. And so preaching at its best is simply putting forth God's Word so that you can see what it says, and not just hear what I say, but you can see what it says and respond to that. So, we're going to work through this, and my hope is that you see for yourself what this passage is trying to say, and then we can draw some conclusions out of that, okay? So, let's work through these verses. We'll start in verse 7. Um, it says, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. <laughs> especially in the Northwest. <laughs> the idea here is that life under the sun is sweet.
sweet. To be alive, to be looking at the sun still, is a great thing which mu with much to be thankful for and rejoice in. Uh, perhaps you're wondering what an amazing thing for the author of Ecclesiastes to say, what, what's going on. This is quite positive and encouraging. There you have it. Don't hold your horses too long, though. Verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is, va is vanity. You knew the fully out positive outlook wouldn't last long, right? And this gets at one of the difficulties of this section. Um, you have these commands to rejoice, and then immediately following them, there is this seemingly darker statement that a can appear to just completely nullify everything that was just said about joy. Yes, rejoice, but yeah, then remember that days of darkness will be many. So what's going on here? Is the author confused? What's going on? Well, I don't think the author is confused. More appropriate to the context is something like this. Rejoice. Really, really, really rejoice in all of your days, throughout all of your life. Seek joy but not in a way that blinds you to reality, to the way that life, is actu life actually is, including the difficulties of life, including, as we'll see here, the difficulties of getting older and our bodies weakening and decaying. As we'll see, the days of darkness here is, is referring to that, is referring to aging and experiencing the effects of our bodies and minds aging. So as you go on in verse 9, we see this. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and yet your, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So the, the, the specific and immediate subject or theme here is the unique joys and opportunities of youth compared with, contrasted with, the difficulties of getting older. Now, youth in this context, as we'll see, seems to mean any amount of strength and vitality and ability and desire that remains before our bodies and minds fail. So this is not just 10 and under, this is not just teenagers, this is not just 20s and 30s, this is all of us to a degree, everyone who has some youthfulness remaining, some ability and strength, and mindfulness remaining. That is the sense here. And so the big idea is this. As God has given you strength and ability and desire and creativity and vigor in life in different stages, embrace them as good gifts and rejoice in your lot, whatever and whenever that is, in the various stages of life. And the reminder here of God's judgment isn't meant to nullify that, but as a reminder that the desires of our heart and of our eyes are not the end of the matter, even when it comes to joy. It's not simply a matter of just pursuing every desire and everything that we see. There are other factors here, as we'll get into. Same thought continues in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, this is a critical verse in understanding this whole passage. Part of the reality 
of rightly rejoicing in youth or youthfulness is remembering and embracing the fact that it doesn't last forever. Not living in a, a fantasy world, pretending and trying to hold on to this stage of life. Vanity here means fleeting. Uh, the word literally refers to breath or vapor or mist, something that is there one second and is gone again. Again, so the, the joy being commended here is a joy that accepts and embraces the reality of life. It's not a trying to, it's not a fantasy world or just trying to distract and divert yourself and numb yourself to what life is really like. And then verse 12, or starting in chapter 12 there, continues to elaborate on this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. So the evil days here connects back to the days of darkness earlier and is simply referring to the weakening of our bodies with age. Now, of course, it's not sinful or evil in and of itself to grow old. However, we do experience some unique results of the fall into sin as we grow old, as we experience weakness as we experience weariness and loss of function. And we are right to long for the day when those things are not the case. We look forward to the full strength and vitality of our bodies in the life to come. But the point here is that day is not now. And as we get older, we experience unique frustrations and weariness, and weaknesses, and the seeming vanity to life. And then this process of aging is described very poetically, symbolically, in the, the last verses we'll look at, and then we'll kind of unpack some of this. So starting at verse 2 in chapter 12, we'll go through verse 8, and I'll kind of point out some of the symbolism here. Uh, so it just said, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, and then verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, this is perhaps referring to our arms as we get older. The strong men are bent, probably referring to legs. The grinders cease because they are few, our teeth. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, our eyes. And the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. This is probably your ears. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way and the almond tree blossoms. Do you guys know what color almond tree blossoms are? White. And what that might refer to then? Graying of hair. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets, a funeral procession. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was, reference to Genesis 3, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And that last phrase is a memorable one. If you've been with us through this series, uh, it's been repeated. The, the word vanity has re been repeated 29 times in this book. But more specifically, it's how the book began. And so we get kind of a bookend here. Right? We're just about to the end. This is how the book began. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is how the book ends. Uh, again, this word means vapor or breath. And it's getting at the idea that life has this fleeting, elusive quality to it. Um, as one commentator says, there, we want there to be a key to life. We want to figure out what the answer, what the key, the meaning to life is, and it appears from all of our efforts that there is no key. We can't figure it out in any satisfying and conclusive way. And it's a little shocking to come across this phrase at the end of the book, right? Perhaps you read a book and you think, well, surely the end gets us somewhere. After all that we've been through, all the wisdom and insights on life, surely we, we figure it all out at the end of the book. Well, not in this case. We haven't discovered a way to live that answers all of our questions, that gets rid of all of our frustrations, that gives us the control and certainty in life that we crave. And if this is how you feel, then you're not alone. You know, if you get through one phase of life or one difficulty and you're like, okay, I figured that out, it's not going to happen again, then it happens again. And yet, Ecclesiastes insists, as does the whole Bible, that in this very experience, there is the opportunity to live with joy. In this experience of life, where we can't figure it out, and we don't have the control and certainty we want, there is the opportunity to live with deep and abiding and meaningful joy. Over and over again, God calls us, even commands us to be joyful. He says that one of the fruits of His Spirit living inside of us is joy. It will produce joy inside of His people. So like I said, we're going to unpack this a bit using this passage, this joy of the Lord, the joy that God grants to His people in this life. Three characteristics of this joy. First, the joy of the Lord comes from accepting the various seasons and situations of life with faith in God. The joy of the Lord comes from accepting the various seasons and situations of life with faith in God. This is a repeated theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, receiving from the hand of the sovereign God what he gives and believing that he has a good purpose for it, even when we don't understand what that purpose is. So back in chapter 5, we read, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So not only are our possessions, whatever we have, whatever opportunities we have, gifts of God, but so is the very ability to accept them, be content with them, rejoice in what we have, in our lot in life. Which means that we neither demand that God give us more or different than he has, or demand that things just stay exactly as they are right now and never change. 
the contentment and joy that God has for us and that God calls us to is not dependent on our situations either remaining the same or changing and improving, but trusting God to do what is good. In chapter 3, we, we read that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Um, that word beautiful can mean um, fitting, appropriate. God has made everything appropriate and, and lovely and beautiful in His time. And so there's a time for everything, as chapter 3 says, and in everything God is working towards a good purpose, a fitting, appropriate purpose. And in context here today, this means both youth and the vigor and strength that come with youth and getting older and old age and the wisdom and perspective and the various benefits that come with getting older. You see, in acknowledging that growing old has some unique frustrations, the author isn't saying that the answer then is to stay young. No, we can acknowledge that there are some unique, because of the fall, difficulties with getting older without going as our world does. Well, life is found in staying young. Now, that's, that's everywhere in our world. Life and joy and purpose are found in being young and strong and adept and beautiful. And if your body appears to be working against this, well, fight against your body as hard as you can. Most of our idols and our heroes are people in their quote-unquote prime of life. They're athletes and musicians and influencers and all of this. And the not-so-subtle message is that, well, getting older and getting weaker is meaningless. You're not worth as much. But that's not what God says. Everything has a time. Everything has a purpose. Which means that we can find joy and find contentment in each and every season of life. In our youth, as we have opportunity, as we have strength and ability and energy and creativity, we can rejoice in that and make the most of it. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. There's goodness in that. And yet, be careful not to cling to any of that as the key to life, because it will let you down. It is fleeting. Youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're no, they won't last. If you look to them for your source of identity and comfort and hope, they will fail you. One commentator writes, to idolize the state of youth and to dread the loss of it is disastrous. It spoils the gift even while you have it. To see it instead as a passing phrase, beautiful in its time, but not beyond it, is to be free from its frustrations. What he's saying is that if our joy is dependent on staying young or staying feeling like we're young or staying in any certain situation or stage of life, then our joy will always be elusive and shaky and fleeting. Even when things are going well, we'll, we'll be clinging to things staying just as they are and we'll live in fearful anticipation of change. But if we learn to accept our lot in life from the good and sovereign hand of God, knowing that he has good purposes and all he brings and wants us to find joy in today, then we can 
really rejoice in all our days. Second characteristic of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord comes from pursuing our desires as they become aligned with God's desires. The joy of the Lord comes from pursuing our desires as they become aligned with God's desires. So here, verse 9 again. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Now, perhaps you tend to hear that middle sentence there about walking in the ways of your heart and sight of your eyes uh, with some skepticism. Don't, we, don't, don't our hearts lead us astray? Don't our eyes lead us into sin? Christians can tend to have a suspicion of desire. But desire is not a bad thing. Desire is a gift of God, a good gift of God. Um, it doesn't take long in looking through the Bible to see that so much of how God describes our relationship with Him involves deep desires and their, those desires being fulfilled. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You can't do these things. You can't delight in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord and love the Lord or even worship the Lord without engaging desires and deep desires. Uh, this was one of Jesus' contentions with the Pharisees, right? That they honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him, is what he told them. In other words, they, they had a form of religion that they said some of the right things, outwardly maybe looked good, but their hearts were cold and desireless, heartless. And he, he didn't give them any credit for that. It was just lip service. Relationship with God is about fullness of joy and delight and pleasure. Now, of course, our desires are often distorted by sin. For example, we can often approach our desires, and this is certainly very common today, we approach our desires as a kind of God. Like they are the sole determiner of reality, of truth, of goodness. If I desire something strongly, it must be good. And we want God to submit to our desires rather than submit our desires to God. Um, if you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, we've seen repeatedly that just pursuing desire as a means to find satisfaction in life is going to leave you empty. Whether that's in wealth or power or self-indulgence, food, sex, all of the various things we desire. And so notice throughout this passage here that side by side, we are commanded to rejoice, walk in the ways of our heart and the sight of our eyes, and side by side with that, remember also your Creator. Remember who God is and His judgment even. It's almost like these two things are one and the same. These are not two different paths. The path to God and the path to joy and desire. These are not in contrast with one another, but come together. Live in the 
fear and love of God and rejoice. Psalm 103 reminds us that God is in the business of satisfying our desires, satisfying us with good, so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103.5, satisfying us with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So there is a, a renewing of youth, but it comes from being satisfied by what is good as a gift from God. And I think if you think about it, are not those who seem most youthful, those who are satisfied with good and with what God gives. Um, Derek Kidner puts it well. He says, joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. Joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. In other words, the joy that God calls us to and commands us of us is not a pursuit of joy as an end in itself, but as a joy combined with goodness and godliness and living in the fear and love of the Lord. And then finally, a third characteristic of the joy of the Lord. And that is simply to recognize that the joy of the Lord is nothing less than a command. We are commanded, just as we are commanded many things in Scripture, we are commanded to love the Lord and worship the Lord. We are commanded to be joyful. Rejoice always. We're told that it is the will of God, in 1 Thessalonians, that we rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. How many days do you go uh, doing that in a row? How many minutes do you go doing that? Rejoicing always, giving thanks in all circumstances. I mean, that means that when we refuse to rejoice... We are actually rebelling against God and not living as He desires of us. When was the last time you repented of being joyful? When was the last time you repented of being miserable, having a sour attitude, being grumpy? I just happened to look at my wife right when I said that. <laughs> no, no uh, intention there. <clears throat> I was repenting, actually. Um, David Gibson writes, Grumpiness is a sin. It is, I think, particularly endemic among males. All the males laugh. It is the kind of sin we tolerate and smile at, the kind we indulge as we return to the castle of our home and find it to be not completely to our liking. It is an emotion we cherish in our man caves at the twilight of a day, ruined by interruptions and hassles or small children and annoying people. It is an attitude of heart and mind, nurtured by the reign of self-pity, and from which the subjects of our self-made kingdom can suffer great harm because they have not treated us as we think we deserve. Man, man or woman, I, I imagine you can relate to, to some of that. And so as we fight for joy, I think one of, the, one of the things that is most helpful to remember is that God is joyful in himself. We can tend to have this 
thought, our mental image of God and the character of God as devoid of joy. But Scripture corrects us on that. In many places, one of them is in John 15. Uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and after a long talk with his disciples, he says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so the will of God for us in teaching us, in calling us to himself, in loving us, in even giving us his commands is to lead us to the fullness of his joy. It, it's perhaps you've never thought about it before, but it's one of the ways that we, we bear his image. If God himself is joyful, we bear his image and we represent him accurately and reflect him when we are joyful. Especially as we close out Ecclesiastes, we need to be clear about this. Because while Ecclesiastes helps us be very honest about life, and especially the difficulties and frustrations and seeming vanity of life, which is a good thing, that's not the end of the story. We're not being called to just go around mopey and pessimists about life. The thought that if we are miserable, then we must be living in the will of God is not from God. Difficulty and frustration, hardship, none of this warrants misery for those who belong to God. And the reason is because who God is to us and what God has done for us makes joy not only possible, an option, but makes it the right and appropriate response in all things. Whether you're young, old, strong, weak, capable, incapable, it's always the right response. Always appropriate for someone who belongs to God. And we are finding this out in Ecclesiastes, which was written many hundreds of years before Jesus. And if this was appropriate and right for the first audience reading Ecclesiastes, how much more is this the case for us? For us who have seen the fullness of God's plan in Jesus and seen the humble love of God to give himself to die for our sin and our rebellion and even our joylessness. How much more is this appropriate for us who have seen the wisdom and the power of God to conquer sin, death, and hell and to bring us safely and securely into his eternal home? How much more appropriate is joy for us who have seen that even the darkest and most evil of days can be permeating with God's purposeful goodness? That was the case for Jesus. And that is the case for us as well. To just put it one other way, the reason that joy and contentment, the reason that God can command these things of us is because God has secured and accomplished them for us. When we see who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus, 
and come to have faith in Him and live before Him, the result is joy. And it's our task to just, as we sang earlier, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, and continue to see that that is the case. So I said at the beginning that, you know, how many people would describe Christians as joyful? Well, God is calling us to that, and may that be increasingly, we are works in progress. Maybe that be increasingly true of us and display to the world a, a unique, enduring, invincible joy that we have in the Lord. Let's pray.